Welcome to the Faith at Work Sermon Podcast. I'm Pastor Jim Melvin. I hope that you are well. This week, I'm going to be talking about something that's important to all of us from time to time. How we can be healed from sickness and disease. As a pastor, one of my important duties is to minister to the sick and dying. Even after over 30 years of ministry, I'm still humbled and challenged by that job. But caring for the sick and dying is not just the job of a pastor or a chaplain. Some of us are given the job of caring for aging and sick parents, especially toward the end of their lives. And parents spend long nights comforting their feverish children. Spouses accompany their partners to endless medical visits and chemotherapy treatments when they're dealing with cancer. And sometimes our job is simple as taking a bowl of homemade chicken soup and bread to a sick friend or neighbor. There is an added dimension to healing that can accompany any and all of these situations, the faith dimension. Christians believe that our faith in Jesus Christ can heal, sometimes miraculously. Different Christian traditions hold different beliefs about how this healing power works and how it can be accessed. Today, I'm going to turn to a couple of important scriptural passages and draw upon my personal experience to explore the mystery of healing. Let's begin with a story of Jesus' healing from the Gospel of Mark. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw him, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. So he went with him. Later, while Jesus was speaking to a crowd, some people came from the leader's house to say, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he'd entered, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, Little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began began to walk. She was about 12 years of age. At this, they were overcome with amazement. Here ends the reading. When I was a small child, small enough to sit comfortably on my mother's lap, I used to visit my great Aunt Margaret with my mother. My memories of Aunt Margaret are of her in bed barely visible under the covers because her body had been ravaged by bone cancer. 
I would watch my mother spoon bitter pain medication through Margaret's dried lips, then offer her a sip of water, which she often gagged on. On other visits, my mother would sit quietly with me on her lap for an hour or two in the sunny bedroom, and we would just listen to her raspy breathing. Often I would fall asleep, cuddling up in my mother's warmth. Later on, as my aunt's illness progressed, I have no conception of how much later on, but my mother would leave me on Margaret's mohair Davenport, well, sofa for those unfamiliar with the term Davenport, with my teddy bear and a picture book. I would cling tightly to my bear when I heard the loud moans and sometimes screams that emanated from the bedroom when my mother had to move Margaret to bathe and otherwise care for her. The sounds and unpleasant odors from those days I still associate with what I would later learn was cancer. I have few recollections of when Aunt Margaret died. I can picture Uncle Frank, her husband, in a suit in the Lutheran church basement, which I assume was at the luncheon after Margaret's funeral. Uncle Frank was a quiet, barrel-chested man, and in my memory of that day he silently chewed on a wooden toothpick, saying nothing, which was his custom when he was lost in thought. I remember, or maybe imagine, that the main words of comfort that were spoken among the gathered mourners were, at least she's not suffering anymore. She was in such pain. And then the days at Aunt Margaret's house ended. She was erased from my life. In that same musty church basement, where the deviled eggs and casseroles soothed the pain of loss, I also sat on my mother's lap when she taught Sunday school to older kids. Each week, after all the classes assembled to sing a couple of songs to the off-tune tinkling of Bertha Alm at the upright piano, we would break up according to age to complete our lessons in the partition basement around age-appropriate sized tables. My mother would call upon students to read haltingly from their personal youth Bibles and then assist them as they filled in the blanks of worksheets, with, with the answers pried out of them by my mother. The worksheets were adorned with realistic color images of Bible stories. The hour ended with a craft using construction paper, crayons, and wintergreen smelling paste that was somehow supposed to relate to the story of the day. Beginning in the first grade, I abandoned my mother's lap and joined the other kids my age. And I spent years of Sunday mornings attending those classes, which continued through our confirmation in eighth grade. And during those years, I became acquainted with all of the favorite hits of the Bible stories. My memories of those stories are visual and come not only from those colored worksheets, but also from the pages of my beautifully illustrated youth Bible that my parents bought me before I could even read the words. In vivid colors, it contained picture, pictures of David slaying Goliath, Noah on his animal-packed ark or sailing under threatening storm clouds, and Moses parting the Dead Sea 
pursued by a distant horde of Egyptian warriors. The pictures in this New Testament show Jesus walking on water, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and most memorably, raising a little girl, the daughter of Jairus, from the dead. I guess the story of the raising of that little girl stuck with me because it kind of scared me. The picture of that little girl looked like children I knew. So that story told me that children like me could die too. That was probably a bit too early for me to learn about my own mortality. Well, maybe it wasn't. But there was something also memorable about that story. Jesus liked little children and had the power to save them. In the end, that tale became as comfortable to me as my mother's lap. Somehow Jesus took away my fear, even my fear of dying. And I was content with that. Furthermore, I learned in other stories that Jesus healed and raised people like my mom and dad too. And that was comforting. Never once in my Sunday school years did I stop to consider the disconnect between my Aunt Margaret's horrible death from cancer and that story. Never once did I ask or even think, where was Jesus when Aunt Margaret was dying? And never once did I question the story of Jesus raising that little girl from the dead. Because I saw both of these events through the eyes of a child. If I try hard enough, and even as I am telling this story, I can see through those child eyes. But now let's go a little deeper. I'm going to read a story of an Old Testament healing. They may help give us some more clues about how we think about healing in the Bible in real life. This story comes from 2 Kings. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man in high favor with his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man, though a mighty warrior, suffered from leprosy. Now the Arameans, on one of their raids, had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, if only my Lord were here with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord just what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And the king of Aram said, Go then, and I will send along a letter to the king of Israel. He went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of garments. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you my servant Naaman, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to give death or life that this man sends word to me to cure a man of leprosy? Just look and see how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me make me look bad. 
But when Elijah, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me that he may learn that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and halted at the entrance of Elisha's house. Elijah sent a messenger to him, saying, Go wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became angry and went away, saying, I thought that for me he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord and his God, and would wave his hand over the spot and cure the leprosy. Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? He turned and went away in rage. But his servants approached and said to him, Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more when all he said to you was wash and be clean? So he went down and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. His flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. Here ends the story. Now, this story contains some interesting characters. First, Naaman, a powerful military commander. He's got money and wealth that he can pay to be healed. We know that he's caught up in his own sense of authority when the king of Israel, another character in our story, sends him to the house of Elijah instead of giving him a royal greeting after he brought him all that money. Little does he know that the king sent him to Elijah because the king felt powerless and doesn't want to be publicly exposed for his weakness and inability to heal or call on God. But then there's Elisha, who is called a man of God, who is able to offer Naaman healing. In the background of the story are a little Jewish servant girl who recommended the king of Israel, and the servants of Naaman who convince him to get over his bullheadedness and do what Elisha says. There's a lot going on here. Naaman, a powerful man, thinks that only a person or healer of great power could heal him, something that you'd have to pay a lot for. So he brings all of his, these riches. Some poor prophet who tells him to go bathe in the polluted river in the backwater country, what could he do? He could have access to the most famous healers in the most luxurious spas back in Aram. King of Israel evidently feels the same way as he washes his hands of the situation and turns it over to Elisha. He doesn't know what to do. But fortunately, because the servants have a faith similar to the little slave girl, Elisha gets the man to swallow his pride, and Naaman is healed. Today, if I were to be given a diagnosis of an incurable form of cancer, I would immediately try to seek out the most well-known experts in the field. 
in my search, I would travel to the University of Wisconsin Madison Medical Center, the Mayo Clinic, John Hopkins, or maybe the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Texas. And like Naaman, since I have good medical coverage, I would expect nothing but the best for me. I would expect them to trot out the best doctors. Now, I know that a pastor or the people of my congregation praying for me would be nice, but get real. It takes the power of technology to heal. And in my inflated sense of self-worth, I might overlook the most important healers that I have access to, the family and friends and congregation who would walk me through the illness, pray for me, be with me to the end, whatever that might be. In the character of the King of Israel, I see myself as a pastor and healer because I know when someone comes to me with a fatal diagnosis, I'm so helpless, I feel like rending my garments. I'm afraid that I'll be exposed as a phony when I fail to heal someone like those televangelists with seven-figure salaries do. In my own deflated sense of self-worth, I could fail to use the power that I have been gifted with through faith. And the same goes for you. You may feel helpless to be a feeling, healing presence when you possess great power as a faithful friend or family member. Don't be afraid that you'll be exposed as a phony or useless. Don't dismiss your power to heal. Listen to the final words of our healing story. So Naaman went down and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. His flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. Naaman's flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. Not only was Naaman's flesh restored like that of a young boy, but his faith was restored like that of a young boy. His faith was restored like that of a young slave girl or his own powerless servants. And he was made clean. He was restored. Somewhere after those days, of the comforting warmness and the reassuring ward, words and pictures of Bible stories, I began to grow up. As Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. I grew up. I learned about doctors, medical treatments. I learned that when you're dead, you stay dead. The pastor in our little Lutheran church never claimed that he would be able to bring Aunt Margaret back to life. Those are painful lessons that we all must learn to live 
and thrive through. But there is a time to put aside our adultish ways. Jesus said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Not being a medical professional, when my friends are sick or dying, or when I am sick or dying, I need to crawl back into my mother's lap and feel her loving warmth. I need to return to that musty basement to hear those Bible stories that I have somehow foolishly abandoned along life's way. I need to dip my hands in the waters of my baptism and be made clean again. Amen. Thank you for joining me today. May God heal your every ill and meet your every need. May God bless you and keep you. May God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Goodbye for now. I love to tell the story of unseen things above of Jesus and his glory of Jesus and his love I love to tell the story because I know tis true it satisfies my longings as nothing Jesus and his love.